Almighty God, we are so thankful and grateful to you for this day, uh, this uh, day to come together as your people, Lord, and bring glory and honor to your name. We pray that you would accept our worship, uh, be with our brother as he preaches the word to us, give him the strength, guide him through your word, help us to receive what he says with open hearts and apply it to our lives, and um, help us to win others in this valley to uh, bring honor and glory to your name. We pray that this day, the whole day, would be honor and glorifying to you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters as they hear your word that they would be changed in such a way that they would bring honor and glory to you. Uh, thank you so much for bringing back the Fernandez's safely to us again. It was like a little piece of peace was missing from our body, and we're ha- happy they're back, grateful uh, today that we get a fellowship with them and everybody at the Christmas party, and just pray that it would be honoring to your name. Amen. If you would please turn with me to Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter two. Second Timothy chapter two. And I'm going to begin to read at verse one. That won't be the focus. Uh, we we uh, of the sermon, this entire section here. I'm going to read from verse 1 through verse 13, but our focus will be on verses 8 through 10. But give heed, uh, this is uh, uh, one section uh, divided into really three parts, and the focus, of course, is on suffering for Christ. and I'll give attention to the reading. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlists him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things." Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of God's, uh, for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, 
He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Amen. The first part of this chapter, verses 1 through 6, really is taken up by um, three illustrations. Three illustrations of what it means to suffer for Christ. Right? You have the soldier, you have the athlete, and you have the hardworking farmer. And really what it points to is uh, to Timothy and the way in which he ought to serve. So as a soldier... He doesn't entangle himself with the things of this world. Right? A soldier's off on duty. If he's been sent somewhere by the military, that's what he needs to focus on. The duties, his calling. An athlete, if he's going to compete, he has to compete by the rules. Right? You can't bring a baseball bat to a football game. <laughs> to compete by the rules. Therefore, as a as a, an athlete in Christ's army, Timothy must compete by the rules. And as a hardworking farmer, right, what does he do? He gets up early. He does everything that is essential to produce a good crop. He gives his time and his effort, his blood, his sweat, his prayers even, for a good crop. But he also can partake of that crop, of his hard work. So Paul wants him to meditate on these things. The, the verses 11 through 13 is a hymn, and note what he does. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Right. So those who say that they have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and that he died for their sins, he uses similar imagery in Romans when he talks about baptism, being dead to the old life and raised to the new life. So this is an encouragement to continue to persevere. And it has union with Christ in mind. This is the only way that a person can endure suffering. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So this hymn looks to the future. The first uh, eight verses, excuse me, seven verses, focus upon Timothy's duty, and they illustrate it by means of these three fields, military, the former, and, uh, excuse me, military, the athlete, and the former. In verses 11 through 13, he looks to the future, and he says that your future actions will determine, your actions now will determine Christ's future response to you. And it's not because Christ changes, it's because we are fickle, and when we're faithless, he remains faithful. Yet this second portion, verses 8 through 10, focuses on three things that are essential for a believer to endure this kind of hardship, to be a good soldier. And if you desire to follow Christ, there will be great difficulty and suffering in your life. So he wants Timothy to focus on three things. First, the sum and substance of the gospel which is Jesus Christ himself. He also wants him to pay attention to Christ's suffering servant, Paul himself. And then he reminds him of the saving sufficiency or the saving strength of God's word. And we'll just take a look at it in three parts now. Beginning at verse 8, the sum and substance of the gospel. And he says to Timothy, bring to mind... 
In other places where Paul uses this word, he, he, he has this idea of remembering, but not remembering something that you have forgotten, but bringing back to memory things that you ought to already know. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. The, the way that the Greek text has this laid out is a little bit different than most, trans, than most translations put it. Literally it says, Remember Jesus Christ, born out of the dead ones. Born out of the dead ones. The firstborn out of the dead ones. And then what's added is of the seed of David. These two things convey one biblical idea. But that biblical idea has great implication for all of theology. For everything that we think about the gospel, these two statements that convey this one biblical idea have a great deal to say. But let's, let's take a look at it. We'll take the two parts, but as I said, it's conveying the same idea. He's the firstborn out of the dead ones. And he's also born the king of Israel. Now, what, the, what, the, what does that mean, the firstborn out of the dead ones? How, how many people have been resurrected? One. Lazarus wasn't technically a resurrection, it was a resuscitation, because Lazarus died again. And even uh, all, if, you, if you think of the, the children and the, the men who were raised from the dead in the Gospels, they all were raised, but they died again. And even in the Old Testament, when someone was raised from the dead, let's say by the hands of Elijah, that person would die again. But when Christ was raised from the dead, his resurrection was a resurrection to eternal life as a physical man. Remember, after Christ dies and he's raised from the dead, he continues to be the God-man. But now there is a quality that he shares in that we don't yet, which is resurrection life. And that is the one in whom we ought to focus our attention. We must bring him to memory. This one who is the firstborn from out of the dead ones. And this one is the king of Israel. He's born of the seed of David. Of course, that's a reference to his genealogy and the connection that is made between the promise of a seed in David, but then also the promise of a seed in Abraham, and the promise of a seed in the garden that we saw in our call to worship. This one promise of a seed, God then develops and he brings it through redemptive history until the point where he arrives to Christ and Christ becomes the fulfillment of these things so that we can say that the Messiah was promised from the beginning of the world. The object of our focus then ought to be in the midst of suffering, the King of kings and the Lord of lords in his resurrected glory. Now, watch how Paul brings these two, um, these two descriptions of Christ, this biblical idea. Watch how he brings them together. Look at Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 29... 
Paul is speaking to the Jews. And the Jews, of course, they should have known the Scriptures, that these promises were laid in the Scripture. Maybe they didn't understand them all fully and completely. But these promises were there. What we'll see is this. Uh, I'll give you sort of, I'm going to give you the answer to the test, and then you'll take the test. But what Jesus wants, excuse me, what Paul wants those who are listening to him to see is that the promise of the Messiah, the promise that David would have a son who would sit upon his throne forever, implies the resurrection of the Son of God. That's what I want to show you. And that's what Paul does here. So look at verse 32. And we declare to you glad tidings that the promise which, were, that promise which was made to the fathers. What's another way of, of uh, saying glad tidings? Good news. The gospel. So what Paul is saying here is that I'm going to declare the gospel to you. That gospel is not brand new. That gospel is the promise which was made to the fathers. So we've seen this in Romans, right? The gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. And in Galatians, I mean, in Galatians we saw it. The gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand when God said that he would have a son. And that that son would be a blessing to the nations. God has fulfilled this, that promise, to us, their children. And I think there he means literally to the Jewish people. That promise of the Messiah has been fulfilled to the Jewish people in the person of Christ. To us, their children. How? In that he has raised up Jesus. The promise that was made to the fathers is fulfilled in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I say the sum and substance of the gospel, that should be our focus. What I'm saying is that the person of Christ, the person and work of Christ, must be the focus. But now, particularly what he wants us to do is, is focus on the aspect of its, its completion. It is completed. We're focusing upon the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So now... Paul demonstrates this. That the promises were fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. Well, how does he do it? He takes them to the scriptures. First, Psalm 2. First, Psalm 2. Now let's... Uh, I want to check the time before I turn to Psalm 2. Uh, let me just read the text. <laughs> You are my son, today I have begotten you. Think of what he's called. He's called the firstborn out of the dead ones. When Jesus Christ is raised victorious from the dead, that in a very true sense is his enthronement. He comes out of the dead for, for what? For what? To be crowned king. Remember in Matthew chapter 28, what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Who has that kind of authority? A king. He is speaking as a king in Matthew chapter 28. 
to his people. And he says, go therefore. That's why we can go in. That's, so there are countries in the world that you cannot bring a Bible into. And we go there anyways. And we don't think, oh, we're breaking the law. Well, no, we do think we're breaking the law, but we don't care. You know why we don't care? Because Jesus is king. Because he said, go therefore. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me now. I've been raised from the dead. I am the firstborn of all the dead ones. Today I have begotten you. You see how the, the authors of the New Testament read the Old Testament. And that he was raised from the dead no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus. See, another, here's another text speaking of his resurrection. I will give you the sure mercies of David. What, what, what are the sure mercies of David? In other words, the blessings of David were promised to David. And if you think to yourself, well, what was the prom- If The promise is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it's the promise that he would have a son to sit on his throne forever. Could that be a human? No. You know why? Not a mere man. Because no man can live forever. So in giving us the sure mercies of David, he means that I'm going to give you a king. Therefore, another text now, therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. That text is not speaking about David, it's speaking about Christ, he explains here. For David, after he had served his own generation, by the will of God fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. You see how he brings together the promise of a Davidic king and the resurrection in two. Because the Davidic king would be one who would rise from the dead. That's what he's saying. And that is glad tidings. That is the sum and substance of the gospel. And we see it in the resurrected Christ. So, for example, when you walk into a Catholic church and you see Christ upon a cross, that is a truth. He died on the cross. He suffered and he died on the cross. But you know why Christians or Protestants... Well, not all Protestants, but thoughtful Protestants don't have Jesus hanging on the cross because he rose from the dead. That is not how we're to remember him. The way that we're to remember him is in his glory. Yes, he accomplished those things. We think about his death for us, his physical suffering, his spiritual sufferings. We think of those things, and those things are true. And those things are, are uh, the sum, a part of this sum and substance of the gospel. But if we want to think of the completion of his work at Christ, in the completion of his work, we think of him as raised from the dead. The way that John saw him in Revelation. And you know what that did to John? It caused him great fear. He was afraid when he saw Jesus raised from the dead. And that is the one who... Timothy must focus on. Focus your attention on this one. Um, One commentator 
puts it this way. He said that our focus should be upon the fulfillment of the promises and the pledge of all just hope and expectation. And that is captured in the resurrected Christ. Our, our religion is, is, is nothing without Christ. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Who cares? He is the object of our hope. And then he adds this, according to my gospel. This is is an interesting way to say it. Because when he says this, most people think to themselves, well, he must have a different gospel. But no, that's not the point. I want to show you a couple of places where Paul Paul says this. Um, What we'll do is we'll look at places where he says something different. How about that? Look at 1 Thessalonians 1.5. In 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says this. First Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 5, for our gospel. You see, there are places where he says, my gospel. There are other places where he says, our gospel in Second Thessalonians, we're not going to turn there, but so you could have the reference. Second Thessalonians two fourteen, he says a similar thing. Our gospel, and the reason why he can refer to it these different ways is he's talking about those ministers, as one author put it, to whom the gospel was confirmed and entrusted. Matthew Matthew uh, Poole said it that way. It was committed to him. It was entrusted to him. And remember how it was committed to him. Do you remember? How that gospel was committed to Who appeared on the road to Damascus? Jesus. But just like ordinary, resurrected in glory. So that a great light shone. And he physically was blind for a time because of the glory that he saw. Whenever Paul recounts the image of Christ, he always speaks of it in this exalted way. Where there is this power, there's this brightness. And I think it's linked to that time when he saw Christ in his resurrected glory. For Look at one example. And then I'm going to show you an example. But uh, if, if, um, so if I had to recommend one Bible study tool that everybody should have, it's the, the name of it is the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. And all it is is a cross-referencing system. Now, not every cross-reference in there is, I think, accurate. But it is very helpful. Because if you go to a passage like 2 Corinthians, it'll point you to a bunch of places. What 2 Corinthians does, 2 Corinthians 4, I think what, what, what Paul does here is he takes his road to Damascus experience, what happened to him on the road to Damascus, and he uses it as a way to present the gospel. Listen to how he describes the gospel here. In 2 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it's hidden. It is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, 
who do not believe. Right? So Paul, Paul was blind. Why? Because he didn't believe that Christ was the Savior of the world. But what happened? A great light shone upon him, right? Lest, so he blinds them, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And that's what happened to Paul. The light of the glory of Christ, it shone upon him. And when he heard the voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? And he didn't mean sir. And he said, it is Jesus whom you are persecuting. He saw the light of this glory, and it changed him. It changed him completely when he saw the glory. And this is the one whom we must fix our minds upon. Again, he is the, this is an image of the sub and substance of the gospel. And if there were two doctrines, really, that, that Paul here is presenting or that we can derive from this is the incarnation and the resurrection. He is the son of David, according to the flesh. Literally, the, the Greek is, and I'm not just saying this uh, to impress you with Greek, but so that you can hear it, because you'll catch it. He says, ek spermatos. It's okay, we're adults, majority of us. Semen, right? That's the word, spermatos, seed. He is the seed of David. He comes from his own loins. What does he mean? He's a real man. Is it, is, Jesus is not some, some a third thing, this weird creature. No, he was a real man. He was of the seed of David. His incarnation is, is, is the focus of the gospel message. Really, the uh, part of the sum and substance of the gospel is the incarnation. But so is the resurrection. Because if Christ just came into the world born as a man, but he never rose from the dead... As Paul says, what's the point of the gospel then? But then as you ask, well, you can ask now some questions about the incarnation that imply his death. Why did he come? Why was he born a man? Oh, he was born to die. And here, of course, you have this sum and substance of the gospel. And very early in Christianity, orthodoxy rested upon this particular truth. So when Christians, right, so the the New Testament finishes, the book of Revelation is closed, and then Christians begin to write about what's in these New Testament books. The truth of the resurrection, excuse me, the truth of the incarnation and the resurrection are always pivotal to the things that they write. So for example, in the Apostles' Creed we read, It was conceived by the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He's divine. Conceived by the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He's a real man. And then his resurrection. Later on in the Apostles' Creed, on the third day he rose again from the dead. If you don't believe that, you are not a Christian. The Nicene Creed, who for us men and our salvation, here's the reason, right? He came down from heaven and was incarnate. Why? For us. Not for himself, but for us. And of course, they must have Philippians 2 in mind here when they write this way. And then later on in the Nicene Creed, he rose again. The Athanasian Creed, it is necessary for everlasting salvation that you believe, 
rightly the incarnation of our Lord. It is essential that you believe rightly that he was born a man, yet at the same time he was divine. And later on, and he rose again the third day from the dead. So this doctrine, the, this sub and substance of the gospel, the incarnation and the resurrection really is the foundation of Christianity. Orthodoxy rests upon it. Remember, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking to Peter. And he says to Peter, Peter, who do men say that I am? And he gives them a bunch of different things that they believe. And then he says, but who do you believe that I am? He said, you are the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's divine. And he says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says also, Upon this rock I will build my church. Upon what rock? Upon the truth of his incarnation and resurrection. That is the sum and substance of the gospel. And in the midst of suffering and difficulty and ministry, he says to Timothy, Remember. Remember who you serve. This is no ordinary man. This is the resurrected king of glory. Yet, we have to remember that this truth is inconceivable to man. That God would become a man. When Paul is describing the gospel in Corinth or to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 2.7, he says that it is the wisdom of God in a mystery. That's, what it, that's how he describes it. The wisdom of God in a mystery. And then in verse 9 he says that I has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Man could never conceive it. Yet our religion rests upon this truth. This is the sum and substance of the gospel. Now, how does this biblical portrait of Christ, replete with doctrinal truth, encourage Timothy to suffer for the gospel? How does it do that? Well, we have to remember, as Calvin said, that Christ did not rise for himself, but for us. So as we think about the resurrected Christ, one of the things that should come to our mind is that he's the first fruit what does that mean? Well, harvest is coming. And you know who's part of that harvest? So in this Lord Jesus Christ, in humility, I'm not talking about open public ministry, because the majority of the time, open public ministry just puffs people up. What I'm talking about is in the privacy of your own home when you're serving your, your uh, family members. In the context of the local church when you're serving the people around you. In the context of your job your vocation, your calling, when you're laboring as unto the Lord and you're working your 40, your 50, your 60 hours a week and you're doing that unto God, that kind of service, what should motivate it? This particular truth, we serve with excellency and we suffer greatly with joy because one day we'll be raised from the dead ourselves. There is a promise that Christ gives us in his word or really in his resurrection that there will be a harvest to come. 
He is the firstborn, the first fruits. He is the first fruits. And as uh, C.S. Lewis puts it really well, he says this. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been that had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different now, particularly for the Christian. There's this hopefulness and this joy now because Christ has been raised from the dead. So as we suffer in this world for Christ, for the glory of God and for the good of his people, and so that unbelievers might come to know his name, we have to remember that all of that suffering it pales in comparison to the reward that Christ promises by his resurrection, that one day we'll be raised from the dead. But second, how should knowing that he is the seed of David encourage and motivate us? Well, all authority is his. Let's say you get some random phone call from somebody, and they say, hey, um, we need you to show up to uh, the uh, Stewart's in Kerhunksen. We've got a buddy who needs you to help him load a truck there. And you say, who's this? And they say, don't worry about it. Just be there tomorrow at 6. <laughs> and they hang up. Are you going to show up? I'm not showing up. <laughs> and one of the reasons I'm not showing up is not just because it's kind of strange for somebody to call you that way. It's because that person has no authority to do that. But let's say... You know, and this is for the sake of office, okay? Not because the person deserves this. But let's say our previous governor, Governor Cuomo, called you personally. It was him. It wasn't an impression, right? And he says, hey, look, there's a public school in your area, and they need some help getting some tables and chairs out of there. There's going to be a U-Haul truck. This is really Governor Cuomo. He FaceTimes you, so you know it's him. Right, It's really him. And he says, and we just need some help loading these tables into these U-Haul trucks. They're going to be transferred to another school, and the students there really need the help. Could you be there tomorrow at 7? What are you going to say? I say, I'm going to be there with bells on. You know why? Because he has the authority to call me to do that. There is a particular authority that he has, Right? Now, Christ, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he has all authority. So if he calls me to love his people, but there is difficulty involved in loving them, I don't have the privilege of saying, I don't want to do that. He has the authority to tell me, do it. Do it. So, those two points of application. So, remember... The sum and substance of the gospel in the resurrected Christ, the incarnation, and of course, his resurrection. But then Paul adds this, to remember his suffering servants. Remember his suffering servants. He says this to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2. He says, for which I suffer, he suffers for the gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. In doing this, he's, he's saying to him, remember me, remember my sufferings. Augustine put it this way, he said, God had one son without sin, but no sons without suffering. 
And Paul really was a man of whom this world is not worthy. Paul suffered greatly and physically for the church. When he uses this word to suffer trouble, what he's talking about is suffering physical pains for the good of others. Most of us, uh, when we suffer just inconvenience for the sake of other people, we complain. It's too early, it's too cold, there's too much snow, whatever it might be. We complain about it. But Paul does not complain when he suffers physical pain, hardship, and distress for the people of God. And look at the way that he suffers. So he says that he suffers suffers trouble, physical pains, as an evildoer. Literally, the word is malefactor. And I like that word. He says he suffers as a malefactor, which is just the word for criminal. The other time this word is used is in Luke 23, verses 32 through 33, to describe the thieves that are next to Jesus. And that is how he suffers for the gospel. Which means, so a historical note, this more than likely is Paul's second imprisonment. Paul is going to die in jail. He's going to die at the hands of Nero. His head is going to be chopped off. It's what we hear from church history, that his head was chopped off. And the reason he's in prison now is because Christians are, now persecution is beginning at some level. And he is suffering because he preaches the gospel. And he is suffering in chains, which is a big no-no because he was a Roman citizen anyways. He shouldn't be locked in chains in a dungeon the way that he is. But he suffers as a criminal. Why? Because of his service to Christ. In Colossians, he says that he fills up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ through his ministry. There was nothing lacking in the afflictions of Christ. But as a way of him communicating that the church, and he as a prime example, must undergo difficulty to reach those who do not know the gospel yet. When he uses this language here, that it's coming up in the next verse, therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect. What he means there is for all of God's people. Those who currently believe, and those who do not yet believe but will be called. And Paul is willing to suffer heartache, suffer difficulty, to give of himself, to give of his money and his resources so that they may know Christ. He suffered all of those things so that today, just to use round numbers, 2,000 years later, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ could shine on us. Humanly speaking, if Paul was not willing to suffer the things that he did, we would not be Christians. He was an instrument used for the redemption of the Gentiles, for us. And we must be willing to suffer for Christ. But he says this, but God's word is not chained. God's word is not chained. As opposed to Paul, right? Paul is, he's, he's locked in his cell, he's bound, but he can continue to preach the word. And what effect does that have? Look at Philippians 
Philippians was written during Paul's first imprisonment. And look at what he says. I think this is what he means by the word of God not being bound. So in, in uh, Philippians chapter 1, it's just a figure of speech for saying that the word of God, it can't be detained the way that he's been detained. He can continue to speak it, and the word can have effect. So that in the midst of our sufferings, when people say, oh, those people, they are, they're, they're legalistic, or they're literalistic, or whatever bad thing people might say about you because you're a Christian, you, you are intolerant, you're uh, unaccepting of, of people with different sexual preferences. When people say all of those things and they try to degrade you, remember this. Oh, re- remember that the Word of God is not bound. Bad things, evil things can be done to the minister of Christ, but the Word of God continues to run. So in Philippians 1.12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The gospel is now increasing in its capacity. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ or for Christ. So... All of the guard there, this is during his first imprisonment, all of the palace guard, they all know why Paul's in chains. And what he means by that is they all know the gospel. Everybody who was there in that, in, on this first occasion where he's in chains, and you can read about that in uh, that situation in uh, Acts chapter 28. He's basically imprisoned in a, in a home where he has a relative level of freedom. But there, what is he doing? Well, he's preaching the gospel, as he always does. And those people who are around him, they all know the gospel. So that it had become evident to the whole palace guard and to the rest, chains are in Christ. But there's another thing added. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So they see Paul's chains and they say, you know what? If he's going to go to prison for preaching the gospel, I'm going to prison too. Let's all go to prison and we'll just have a prison ministry. <laughs> because they see, they, they are gaining confidence. So two things happen. Where, the place where he is, the gospel spreads, and others, because of his boldness and his willingness, they follow the pattern. And that's what he's encouraging Timothy to do in Second Timothy. Don't be discouraged that I'm in chain. Continue to suffer for Christ. Continue to suffer for him. Now look at the end of this uh, epistle in chapter 4, verse 22. Listen to what he says. And I think this is kind of funny. It's, it's ironic almost, right? So the palace guard all know the gospel because he's in jail. And then he says this. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Who are they? That's the palace guard. (laughs) And he's saying, I'm here in jail, and now all of these people have gotten converted, and they're all Christians. And he says, yeah, all the prison guards here? They say, what's up? (laughs) Especially them, (laughs) right? They're especially happy that I'm in chains. Those prison guards must have been, the ones who got converted must have been thinking to themselves, thank God that Paul got arrested, because I would have never known the gospel. 
unless he was in chains, willing to suffer for the gospel. That's what he means that the word of God is not bound. So, you know, the, the, uh, the government can seize lands, they can, uh, they can, they can um, this government can levy fines, they can do all of that stuff. They can do whatever they want, and, and you know, we'll, we wind up meeting in Mr. Jaffe's basement, you know. <laughs> they could do that if they want, but what they could never do is bind the word of God. That's why Christian people ought to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, to be counted as malefactors and talked poorly about. Because the word can't be bound at all, ever. Lastly, lastly, he says this in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And here he's, of course, focusing on the steadfastness of the word to save. He's willing to suffer because the word of God can't be bound. And since the word of God cannot be bound, the elect will continue to come to faith by means of the sufferings that, the, that Paul undergoes. He's literally bound, but the word cannot be literally bound. Never. never. But now notice the structure here. What, what is Paul communicating? And this is really the structure of the gospel. If you think about the incarnation and the, uh, excuse me, yes, if you think of the incarnation and the resurrection of Christ, you, could, you, divide it, you can divide it this way, theologians have done it in the past, the sufferings of Christ and the glory of Christ. And what Paul is saying, what he is commending to the church is, you should be willing to suffer now to attain glory later. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of God's elect. Now, that's the sufferings. As, as a missionary people, that's what the church really is. Yes, we're left on earth to worship the true and living God. But think, where will we worship God perfectly? In heaven. New heavens and the new earth. We're, we're meant to fellowship with one another, but really, where will fellowship be perfect? In the new heavens and the new earth, in heaven. But what is one thing that the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to do, he's commanded us to do it here on earth that we can't do in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth. We can't evangelize. We can't preach the gospel in the new heavens and the new earth. We don't have to, that's right. We don't have to, praise God, right? We won't have to do that anymore. But while we're here on earth, we are called to suffer for that end so that the elect might come to know Christ. And as I said, you... Uh, or he's looking to those who don't know Christ yet, but also it's the elect, those who already believe. I think that both are there. I don't think that you have to split and separate that. But that's the structure of the gospel. Suffering now, glory later. He is commanding the life of Christ, or commending the life of Christ, as a model for the life of the church and of every believer. Listen to, to this language in the Bible. He learned obedience through what he suffered. 
speaking of Christ. He had a life of suffering and he, he learned obedience. In Philippians 2, 8 and 9 that we read this morning, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the, on the cross, but God has highly exalted him. Sufferings and glory. But more clearly, Peter in 1 Peter 1.11 says this. He's speaking of the Old Testament prophets. And he says, The Spirit of Christ was in them, in the Old Testament prophets, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. The sufferings of Christ are his incarnation, his life on earth, and his sacrificial death, and the glories of Christ begin in his resurrection. But you know what's a vital part of that resurrection, of the glory of Christ, is the establishing of the church and the preaching of the gospel. And as we go throughout this world, we're going to suffer, but there will be great glory because men and women will come to know Christ. Um, women in particular understand this, this concept of suffering and glory, or I would say mothers in particular. Not to say that others can't, but, but you think about it. You get pregnant, right? And what happens? Well, you start to gain weight. And when you gain weight, you have all kinds of aches and pains. And then you have pregestational diabetes. And you have preeclampsia. And you get Braxton Hicks. And you go into labor. And you deliver this baby. All of that is suffering. But it's worth it at the end. Why? Because the glory of that little baby makes all of those things pale in comparison. And as the church in this world suffers through trials, tribulations, and great difficulty, they're willing to do it. Why? Because of the glory that they see when one sinner turns and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul commends suffering to Timothy, and we ought to enjoy it and dive headlong into it. There are practical ways that we can do that, too. Like... Um, you should, we, you should look to the people. Here's some practical ways to do it. You can and begin at home. What are some practical ways that I can serve my family? Now, that doesn't always mean, right, so if you think of roles that the husband has to wash the dishes. That's one way you can do it. But there are other ways. Let's say you're not in the practice of reading the scriptures and praying on a regular basis and the word of God having its proper place in your home where it's exercising influence. Well, you need to start there. But that's so insignificant if you really think about it. right? It's a form of suffering. You know why? It's a form of suffering for some Bible reading and prayer because we're so self-centered and selfish. So that now this, the way that we think is this has to bite into my schedule. Are you out of your mind? No way. It's not biting into your schedule. It's properly arranging and organizing your life. But initially, it's, it takes some suffering. You should then look to the people in your church who may need help. And I don't just mean monetary help. You just think around. You know what? what um, you think of particular people, uh, uh, older folks who are married, older folks who are widowed, folks who are widowed. Folks who are raising children by themselves, folks with a lot of children, folks with older children. And you think of how can I minister to them? How can I give up my time to serve them and to be a blessing to them? That's one way to do it. 
where you sacrifice your time? How about opening up your home to have people over to be hospitable to them? And somebody might break something in your house, right? Or maybe your place is small and you can't have 15 people over. You can only have one family over. Why not sacrifice and do that? Have the money to do it. That's okay. Buy hot dogs and hamburgers. I'm not saying to have like prime rib and, and to go out and spend two, three hundred dollars buying food. No, you get some, you get whatever you can afford, and you open up your home and you serve a meal. Now, let's say you don't live in a kind of place that is acceptable to you, so you don't want to have people over your house. Well, just be a little humble, right? I don't live in the ideal place. I'll tell you the truth, right? But so what? I'm not having people over my house to exhibit my home as a gallery. I'm having people over my house to open up my heart to them so that I could get to know them and I can learn how to love them. But it takes a bit of humility, some suffering there to do that. You've got to time, effort, right? When you have people over your house, you know what you have to do? You have to cook. You have to clean. You have to clean up after them. You have to clean up after they leave. They're going to break your Your stuff will be broken and run down sometimes. But so what? And, and again, these are small things. I'm not saying to any of you to, you know, uh, get on a plane to China and go preach until they chop your head off. I'm not saying that. I'm taking small steps in which you can think of others more than you think of yourself. So that you could be a blessing to them. So that you could serve them. There are many other things that we can do. Um, but I'll, I'll leave you there. Let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. And then I guess maybe Pastor Keith can come up and give instructions about what we're doing later because I don't quite sing the doxology, and then Keith will give some, uh, Pastor Keith will give some instruction. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his love to you and for his willingness to suffer for the gospel and for the sake of the elect. We ask, Lord God, that as we consider the gospel and the sub and substance of the gospel, the person and the work of Christ, that it would motivate us and encourage us to do things that are hard, Lord. We also pray that uh, you would help us to look at these examples like Paul, but then even men outside of the Bible, throughout church history, that have given of themselves for the sake of the elect. Help us to imitate them, their virtues, and their love for you and for your people. And we pray, Lord God, and ask you, that we would have great confidence in the gospel, knowing that the word of God cannot be bound, it cannot be chained. So may we preach it boldly, may we meditate upon it, may it build us up and strengthen us in all things. We ask this in Christ. Amen.